Awesome. <laughs> Everyone is entitled to their own interpretation. Have you ever heard that before? Everyone is entitled to their own interpretation. I have an interpretation. You have an interpretation. You have an interpretation. What's true for me is true for me, and what's true for you is true for you. Have you ever heard that before? Maybe it's within the context of the church, or maybe it's not. It's just completely outside of that. I feel like I can say that with a degree of confidence this morning, that wherever your belief system is, that is something that we have all been exposed to, that idea, that perhaps that idea that everybody is entitled to their own opinion. Here's the problem with that. When those opinions and those interpretations butt up against one another, when one says one thing and one says exactly the opposite, we are all entitled to our own opinions, but that does not mean that both can be true at the same time. When they are in contradiction with one another, there is one correct interpretation among all of the interpretations. We want to talk about the principle of interpretation today. How do we read what God has spoken to us and interpret it correctly? This is very, very important because if we get the rules and the principles of interpretation wrong, we mishear and we begin to form some very dangerous and untrue ideas about who God is and what he does and what he says, and what that means in our life, right? Let me give you another example. Um, the Bible teaches that God does not expect you to be successful, but only to be faithful. How many people have heard that before? The Bible doesn't expect you to be successful. It expects you to be faithful. Have you heard that before? Well, here's the reality. It's only half true. The Bible does say that we are to be faithful. God does expect a measure of faith from his followers. And it's kind of true about success, at least in terms of worldly success and how we might define it outside of a faith perspective. God's not really concerned with the letters after your name. God is not really concerned with the amount of dollars or lack of dollars in your checking and your savings account. God doesn't expect us to be successful in the traditional world view of success, but God does expect us to be fruitful. God does expect us to be fruitful. God has said, I've made an investment in you. He said, I made you. I created you. I sent my son to die for you. I sent Holy Spirit to reside within you, and I expect a return on investment. I'm a big ROI guy, return on investment, all right? I expect you to be faithful and fruitful. We want to take a look at a passage today from the book of John chapter 15. There's 17 verses that we're going to read together that talk about this idea of fruitfulness. If you haven't gotten your Bible reading in this morning, I've got good news. We're going to do it together. All right. It is on your handout, your message notes, and the words are also going to be up on the screen. Let's read it together and, uh, and then we'll chat about it. It says this, I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no. I like when you guys talk back to me. There we go. While every branch that does bear, he prunes so that it will be even more. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. The word remain here means to be connected. All right. You need to be connected to the vine. It says no branch can bear by itself, it must remain or be connected to the vine. Neither can you bear 
unless you remain or stay connected to me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much. Why don't you circle that? It seems like maybe this is a theme in the text. He wants us to be a much fruit person, all right? Uh, Apart from me, you can do nothing. He didn't say a few things. He didn't say less things. He said nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burnt. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. Holy Spirit, do not allow us to miss out on the awe of this promise because we've heard it before. Showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this, all of these things, so that joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit that will last. Then the father will give whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. My friends. This passage of scripture that we're going to focus in on today, we're going to focus in on a particular portion of it, a particular concept contained within it. You may or may not be able to guess what we're going to talk about today. You've said it nine times already. Fruit, right? We can only talk about a portion of it because this could be an entire series and we would not be able to get through all of the spiritual truth contained in it. But we're going to talk about fruit today. And the way that we're going to do that is I want to show you how verses are misinterpreted. Because this is one of the most misinterpreted passages in the entirety of Scripture. And when we get this wrong, we, if we ignore the rules of interpretation, we begin to form some scary and untrue ideas. See, the Bible has one meaning and only one meaning. It has multiple applications, depending on whether you're a man or a woman, a a child or a senior, uh, that you've been a Christian for your whole life, or you've just said yes to Jesus, whether you're living in the first century or the 21st century, the Bible has multiple applications, but it only has one meaning. There are legitimate interpretations, and there are illegitimate interpretations as well. The truth is that if we are willing to take God's word out of context, we can make it say anything that we want. But that doesn't mean that we should do it. So I want to show you today, my friends, how to interpret. I want to give you these rules, these these guidelines, these principles, so that you will be equipped to be able to do this on your own. 
so that you will be able to hear when somebody is speaking on YouTube or somebody is you know, on a podcast that you're listening to or maybe there's a coworker or a schoolmate who's saying something about, about an idea that they had, an interpretation that they heard so that you can be able to discern, is that true? Is that really what God said or is it not? The problem in this passage of scripture is verse six. Let's read it together. If anyone doesn't remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withered. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. That is scary. And I have heard people share this verse, teach this verse. And what they say is that the fruit of a Christian is another Christian. And I agree with them. The fruit of an apple tree is what? Apples, right? The fruit of a vineyard is more grapes. The fruit of a Christian is another Christian. Like, uh, I can follow along there. That is not inaccurate. But they go on to say that what this verse means is that the fruit of a Christian is another Christian. And if you're not winning people to Christ, that your salvation is in peril. And Jesus is going to tell you that you are burning in hell for eternity, right? Is that what this verse means? No, That is a gross misinterpretation of this verse, and it completely ignores the principles that I want to share with you this morning. So what are those principles? I want you to write these down on your message notes today. The first principle that you need to be aware of, consider the historical context. Consider the historical context. Who is being spoken to and why? Long before you ever begin the process of trying to say, what does this mean to me? What is the application of this verse for my life? Long before you get there, you need to ask the question, who is God speaking to and why is he saying it and when is it being said? Now, this particular passage that we read together this morning from John 15 is a passage on fruit bearing right in the middle of a longer conversation with the same people. Let's remember that chapters and verses in our Bible were actually put there later on because our attention spans were dwindling, and so it was for our ease of use. But this conversation, each chapter does not mark a new conversation. This conversation is four chapters long. And so if we are going to understand what Jesus is saying in John 15, we actually have to go back to John 13 and read all the way through 16 in order to get the context. Right? So John 13, he's having a conversation with the 12 disciples. They're together in the upper room. They're about to celebrate the Passover meal, communion. That's where we get what we did this morning. That's where we get what's going on. And he's, he's about to celebrate the Passover meal with them. And in John chapter 13, they arrive, they walk in. <clears throat> Jesus takes off his robe, puts a towel around his waist, and begins to wash the feet of all the disciples. Now, this is not weird in the sense that this was a common practice. Jewish custom would say that if you went to somebody's house for a meal, particularly a, like a, a Jewish festival meal, you would have your feet washed. And it makes a lot of practical sense, right? Like they didn't have shoes. They had sandals. There weren't paved roads. They were dirt roads, right? And so their feet are very dirty. So even on a practical, non-spiritual level, this makes a lot of sense. But the difference is Jesus was the one who was washing their feet. And in Jewish custom and culture, the host would never be the one to wash the guest's feet. That was always the job of a servant, 
And so the disciples arrive, and Jesus is doing this, and they're kind of freaking out. They're like, have you gotten into the wine already before we've arrived? Because this is not how it's supposed to go. And Jesus gets to Peter. He gets to Simon Peter. And Simon Peter says, no, Lord. He says, you can't do that. By the way, the phrase, no, Lord, is a contradiction. All right? He's either your Lord and you say yes, or he's not your Lord and you say no, but you don't say no, Lord. All right? He's either your Lord or he is not. And Jesus says to Peter, he says, now you don't understand. You don't understand what I'm doing right now, but in a few days you will. In retrospect, isn't it true that there are moments in our life where in the moment we can't see what Jesus is doing in our life, but only when we look back do we see what Jesus has done. And so Simon Peter says, okay, Lord, well, if that's the case, wash my entire body. That's not just my feet. If this is something I need, wash my entire body. And Jesus responds, and he says, somebody who is already clean does not need to have a full bath, but only his feet need to be washed. He goes on, he begins to talk about in chapter 13, how not all of them are clean. Later on, why does he say that? Because Judas the disciple who ends up betraying Jesus and Jesus knew it was going to happen, Judas is still there in the room. At some point later in the same conversation, Jesus says to Judas, go and do what you need to do. And Judas leaves. And so we read later that Jesus says they're all clean. Why? What happened? What changed? Judas isn't there anymore. Right? And so he's, he's giving them, he knows that they are going to be crushed by his death. He knows, they don't know, he knows that he is about to die. This conversation is happening in the context of an intimate scene, a private room with the people that he spent the last three and a half years with, pouring his life into them. These are his friends. And he knows that he is going to die, even though they don't. And he knows that when that happens, they will be wallowing in grief. They will be shocked. They will be discouraged. And so what does he do? He gives them this lesson. He says, guys, here's what I need from you. I need you to serve each other, and I need you to love each other. He goes on in chapter 14, and he begins to give them some promises. He says, guys, I'm going to be gone, even though they're not understanding at this moment. He says, guys, I'm going to be gone. In chapter 14, he gives them four promises. They're still in the upper room. Judas has left. He says, in verse 11, he says, don't worry because I'm going to heaven and I'm preparing a place for you. Verses 12 to 14, he says, by the way, you don't need to worry because you can talk to me anytime in prayer. Verses 15 to 25 say, don't worry because my father is going to send you Holy Spirit, who is your comforter, who is your counselor, who is your guide, and he will be with you. And then in verse 27 to 30, he says, you don't need to worry because I'm going to give you the gift of peace. Now, that's not a worldly peace that says you won't have any trouble. In fact, he says, yes, you will have troubles. But I'm going to give you my peace, that in the midst of those troubles, my peace overcomes the world. So in chapter 14, he gives these four promises. He promises that you can talk to him in prayer. He promises that he's preparing a place for them in heaven. He promises Holy Spirit, and he promises his peace that overcomes the world. The end of chapter 14, verse 31, it says, come now, let's leave this place. So Jesus and his disciples continue the conversation. The 11 that are left, Judas isn't there anymore. The 11 that are left, they leave the upper room. And they're walking down this hill through a valley, and they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is where Jesus is going to be arrested, right? And he knows this is going to happen. Jerusalem is on a hill. So they're walking down the hill, and in the middle of the valley, they're in the vineyards of Jerusalem. 
all right? And he sees these vineyards and he says, it's time for an object lesson. He says, I'm the vine and my father is the vineyard keeper. Every branch that stays connected to me, it's going to bear fruit. But if you get disconnected from me, you're not going to bear fruit. You have to stay connected to me, guys. I'm going to be gone. I'm not going to be with you, but you need to stay connected to me. And he goes on, he talks about being connected. And then at the end of the object lesson, verse 11, he says, I've told you all of this, all of this. Chapter 13 through this conversation about prayer, about heaven, about Holy Spirit, about peace, about fruitfulness. This is all one conversation. He says, I've told you all of this that you might have joy. That is the context of what's happening here. Who is he talking to and why is he saying it? He's talking to his closest friends and he's saying it because he knows they're going to be discouraged. Now, in light of that, what are the odds that what Jesus is saying in this verse, what are the odds that he's saying that if you do not lead other people to me, you are going to burn in hell? By the way, I'm saying that so you'll be really joyful. Right? The context, the context completely like, disproves the idea that Jesus is talking about hell here. The first thing we need to do to interpret the word of God is to look at the historical context. The second principle that we need to do is define key words. Define key words. Look, if you're going to get the right meaning of what God is saying to you, of a Bible verse, you need to make sure that you understand what the word means, not what you think it means. So that means that if you understand a word somewhere in the Bible and the same word is used again, it doesn't necessarily mean that it means the same thing. We know this, right? Like we talked about this last week that in English, the word pin has more than 60, defin 60 definitions, right? There's a pin to like a linchpin to attach two things together, right? Like there's a pin for like sewing, right? There's a rolling pin or a, a, or a, a bowling pin, right? Or a wrestling pin. You can use that word as a verb, right? Like you can pin somebody in a corner. You can pin a king in a chess match and immobilize them. You can pin a crime on somebody. Just because you have a word and you understand it in one context does not mean you know the meaning of what it's saying right here. For example, the word fire. Many people see this word fire and they think of the fire of hell, but not necessarily. That's not necessarily what it means. And by the way, it doesn't. John chapter 15, you've probably noticed that the word love is used nine times. The word fruit is used nine times. And it's probably fair to say that we can figure out what the word love means. But it's very important for us to really understand what fruit means. If God expects this of us, what does it mean to be fruitful? What is that? If that's the expectation, we better figure this out. All right? Most of us, if you've grown up in the church and you've gone to Sunday school, you know the song, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, uh, goodness, gentleness, meekness, and self-control, right? Like, I went to Sunday school, right? You got to do that. It's, it's holier, I think, right? We would automatically assume that fruit means the fruit of the Spirit, but that's not necessarily true. The word fruit is used 44 times in the New Testament, and it has at least 10 different meanings, I want to show you a few of them. We're going to 
rapid fire through them very quickly. Let's go to the next slide here. Fruit of repentance, talking about a sinful lifestyle. Uh, The fruit of the vine, he's talking about communion wine. The next one, uh, we bore fruit for death. Again, sinful lifestyle. Uh, Romans 15, 28, received this fruit. He's talking about an offering, right? Remember last week we talked about a love offering that went to Paul. That's uh, an offering of money. The fruit of the spirit, those are the nine godly attitudes. Let's go to the next slide, the next one here. The fruit of light, that's truth and righteousness and goodness. Uh, The gospel is bearing fruit fruit and growing. That means there are new believers. People are saying yes to Jesus. And Hebrews 13, 15, praise to God, the fruit of our lips. When we sing to God and declare his praises, that is fruitfulness. So we have at least 10 different definitions for the word fruit. What does it mean? What does it mean in this context? That brings us to our third principle today, I need to interpret unclear verses with clear ones. I interpret unclear verses with clear ones. As we read in John 15, we don't necessarily know what fruit is, but we see three clear characteristics of fruit. So I want to look at those in verse 4, verse 8, and verse 11. All right? And all I'm going to do is see them and write them down. Verse 4, remain in me, and I will remain in you. Do you remember what remain means? to continue, to stay connected, to abide, to last. It's the Greek word meno, M-E-N-O, and it means connected. A branch that is connected to the tree can bear fruit, but if it's disconnected, it cannot. It says here in the text, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So the first thing that I am going to do when I'm doing a Bible study, I'm simply observing what it says. I'm not trying to interpret. I observe, and I write down, bearing fruit is produced by remaining in Christ. That's the first thing it says. What does that mean? It means that fruit is an inside job. We gain spiritual fruit in our lives by remaining connected to Jesus. Some of us will walk around with the desire for spiritual fruit without remaining connected to Jesus. And so we tie things onto our life like good works, trying to replace real spiritual fruit with the things that we can accomplish on our own. Now, my grandfather had a summer home in Florida, and in his backyard, he had a grapefruit tree. One summer, he was, or winter perhaps, he was very upset that his grapefruit tree didn't grow him any grapefruits. And so his buddy thought he was a funny guy, went and bought some grapefruits from the store. While my grandfather was sleeping, he went onto his property and he tied the grapefruits onto the tree so that when my grandfather woke up the next morning, he would see a tree filled with grapefruits. It doesn't work like that when it comes to spiritual fruit. Fruit is an inside job. Verse 8 says, this is to my Father's glory that you may bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be disciples. So the second thing I'm going to write down is that bearing fruit brings glory to God. How do we know that? We just read it. Bearing fruit brings glory to God. Then the third thing, it says bearing fruit is produced by remaining in Christ. It brings glory to God. Verse 11, we get the third characteristics. He says, I have told you this. this is Jesus speaking. I have told you this so that, you, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So I write this down. Bearing fruit will give me complete joy. Whatever bearing fruit is, it's produced by remaining in Christ It brings glory to the Father, and it brings me joy. 
So we learn these three things about it, and we still have the question, what is it? How do I do that? How, what is the fourth principle? The fourth principle is this, look for the most obvious meaning. Look for the most obvious meaning. Here's the reality, guys. So many of us do the exact opposite. We look for the hidden meaning. We look for the secret meaning in the Bible. I mean, have you ever heard that? Those documentaries of the secrets of the Bible. You're watching the History Network or the Discovery Channel. The secrets of the Bible. I'm going to give you a secret today. There are no secrets in the Bible. Like, why did God give us the Bible? What is the purpose? To reveal himself, not to conceal himself. And so here's what you can know for sure. If you hear somebody in your life, if you hear somebody talking in some sort of video on YouTube, no matter how many followers they have, if they tell you they've found the secret hidden meaning, you know it's not correct. If it's new, it's not true. All right, Here's, if it's new, it's not true. The reality is that God has been revealing himself and speaking to his body, the church, for 2,000 years. And thousands of people have noticed it before us. We will notice it right now, and there will be thousands of people who notice it after us. If it's new, it's not true. There's not a secret meaning. We look for the most obvious meaning. If we don't do this, we get into all kinds of trouble. All right, let me give you an example. There are some people who claim to uh, act in the uh, spiritual gift of prophecy. Now, let me just clarify. We believe in the gift of prophecy, all right? It is a biblical idea that Holy Spirit distributes to followers of Jesus as he wills, and it is for the edification, the encouragement of the church. We see it happening in the Bible. Much of the Bible is prophetic, and Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy, and there is no evidence that shows us that this is something that God would not do anymore. All right, we believe in the gift of prophecy, but some people claim to be prophetic when really they're just pathetic. All right, let me give you an example. Uh, about 40 years ago, there was a book that was written that claimed that if you assign a numerical value to each letter in the English alphabet and you add them together, the name Henry Kissinger spells antichrist. All right, this was claimed to be a prophetic book. It's not prophetic. All right, let's just ignore the fact for a second the Bible wasn't written in English, it was translated to English. Let's just gloss over that. But it's a brand new idea. It is not prophetic. That is what is called eisegesis. When we take our own ideas, when we take our own personal preferences, and we try to find something in the Bible to support it, we can make the Bible say whatever we want if we're willing to take it out of context. But if we do that, we don't have the Word of God. We just have pretext. All right? Now, another tip for you. Do not go looking for secret hidden meaning in every little word. Do not try to attach spiritual value to every little detail. That's what's happening when people read verse 6 and they say, branches thrown into the fire. They look at the fire and they say, oh, that must be the fire of hell. But the reality is, it's not. We need to let the text speak for itself, all right? The word fire here in the Greek language, the initial uh, original language is the word P-U-R, all right? And you know what it means? Just regular fire. It means a campfire. And Jesus, in this context, is walking through this vineyard. And he's giving them an object lesson. And he says to them, the purpose of these vines are to produce fruit. And so if a fruit tree doesn't produce fruit, 
it doesn't hold any value unless you take it and you burn it for firewood. <clears throat> That's all he's saying. That's it. Remember, they're not cooking with microwaves. All right, they're not cooking with coal. They don't have natural gas to be using to cook their food. What do they use to cook? Firewood. He's not saying that he's going to cast you to hell if you don't lead people to Jesus. Not at all. He's simply saying that the fruit of a vine is grapes. And unless it does that, it doesn't hold value. Unless we use it to cook the food that we have. A text without context is just a pretext. It's not an excuse to make up something that's not there. We need to let the text speak for itself. And when you let the text speak for itself, the meaning becomes obvious. When we let the text speak for itself, it's very clear what fruit is. Let's talk about it. All right. Going back to the text, looking at three things. Verse 7 of chapter 15 says, If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, where have we heard that before? About fruit. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, you may ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. He's talking about prayer. So I would write down, remaining in Christ produces answered prayer. That's not a stretch of the verse. That's simply what it says. Remain in me, and my words remain in you. You can ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. So remaining in Christ, being connected to Christ, produces answered prayer. The second thing, chapter 14, verse 13. Remember, this is the same conversation. Why can we go back to the chapter before? Because it's the same guys, same conversation. And he says, I will do whatever you ask. There's the same phrase. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. What is the second thing that we learn? Answered prayer brings glory to God. He says, if you were to remain in me and you were to ask in my name, that it would bring glory to God. And so when God gives you what you ask, it is glorifying him because it demonstrates how loving he is. One more verse, chapter 16, 24, same group of guys, same conversation. Jesus says, until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. There's that same phrase again. Ask and you receive, and your joy will be complete. Where have we heard that phrase before? Your joy will be complete. When he's talking about fruit, right? So answered prayer, this is what I write down, answered prayer will bring me complete joy. Did you know the Bible in the New Testament, it tells us, it commands us to ask over 20 times. 20 times it tells us to ask. Ask and it shall be given. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened. The book of James says, you have not because you ask not. God doesn't shut the storehouse until you shut your mouth. All right? Jesus, in his final words to the disciples, the most important thing that he has to say, why do we know that? Because you saved the most important thing for last. If you know you're going to die and there's something more important to talk about, you talk about that instead. And so he's talking about the most important thing. He's summarizing the entirety of his ministry. And he says, guys, I need you to stay connected to me. You can ask, and I want to give to you, and it's going to produce answered prayer. Remaining in Christ produces glory to God, and answered prayer will bring you joy. When you don't pray, you don't cheat God. You cheat yourself. 
When you don't pray, you don't hurt God, you hurt yourself. Bearing fruit is produced by remaining in Christ, by it brings glory to God, and it gives me complete joy. Answered prayers comes from remaining in Christ. Answered prayers bring glory to God, and answered prayers bring me joy. You see the connection. Just in case you missed it, Jesus goes on in, uh, one more time in verse 16. He says this. He ends his talk with this. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. What is the first thing he talks about after he talks about fruit? Prayer. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. So here is the main point from this scripture. I waited all morning to tell you. Here's the main point. This is what I would write down. I bear fruit, this thing that I am commanded to do. I bear fruit by asking in prayer. This is what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about losing your salvation because you don't win somebody to Jesus. He's talking about fruit that comes from prayer. Prayer is the root of all fruit. All right? Prayer is where all of those other godly virtues in life come from. The fruit of the Spirit, gentleness, faithfulness. Prayer is the password for everything that God wants to do in our lives. Now, do you know what the problem is? We treat prayer like it's a spare tire. And God wants us to treat prayer like it's the steering wheel. Right? We pray very easily. When there's a crisis, we pray very easily when our car breaks down and we need to pull out the spare tire. But God says, I don't want you to treat prayer like the spare tire. You need to treat it like the steering wheel. Instead of saying that prayer is the last resort, it should be the first choice. Because when we pray, it bears spiritual fruit in our lives. And when we bear fruit, we pray more. And then we pray more and we bear more fruit. The more, the more I pray the more fruit I'm going to have. The more fruit I'm going to have, the more I pray. See, our problem is that we have trouble with prayer when we're not in trouble. We have trouble praying when we're not in trouble. When things are going good, it feels like I don't need to pray. But everything that God does in my life comes from the spiritual fruit of prayer. A Bible study has no value until you get to the last step. You guys remember what it is? We talked about the four steps last week. Observation, interpretation, correlation, and application. A Bible study, the word of God, hearing a sermon, reading your Bible, has absolutely no value until you get to the part that says, what am I going to do about it? Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 says, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, circle puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. So if I put into practice what I have learned about prayer, when those storms of life come, when those tribulations come, I will have a firm foundation. But he says that if you just hear it, if you just see it, if you just observe it and take notes about it and you don't actually do it, the Bible says that Jesus says that's like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And when those problems come, things fall apart. And the problem is that all over North America today, that there are thousands, tens of thousands of people, maybe hundreds of thousands, listening, reading, watching the word of God, 
with absolutely no intention of doing anything about it. That's foolish. You know, I knew a man who would attend church, and he was really looking for the best communicator. And I don't devalue good communication, because I do believe that everything we do, we do as unto the Lord. And so if we can do it with excellence, we should do it with excellence. But he came into the room looking for like the mega church pastor in his local community, right? He's looking for the guy that will entertain him the most. Who is the biggest lights, you know, the best music, the, the best communicator. And if it didn't live up to what he expected, he would simply get up and leave the service halfway through through. Now, the reality is that every single sermon, every time you read the word of God, everything that you hear, it is all shallow unless you do something about it. And that is why you can sit beside somebody else in the room and they say, man, that was so deep. And you can walk out and say, that was so shallow because it didn't actually make a change in our lives. Look, we can learn all of the context. We can learn all of the history. We can have the best ideas and the best knowledge about everything that the Bible has to say. But until it changes the way that we live our lives, it's not worth anything. If it doesn't change the way that we treat our wives, it's not worth anything. If it doesn't change the way that we treat our kids, it's not worth anything. If it doesn't change the way that we're honest or dishonest at work or cheating on our taxes or watching porn on the internet or, or getting into just being impatient and, and not living out the nine godly attitudes that we talked about, then it's not worth anything. That is why we make no apologies for being a next steps church. I don't know if you've noticed, but if you've been here for more than one week, almost every single time that we get together, I give you a next step to take, right? And many times, for those of us who are hearing about Jesus for the first time, we give you an opportunity very frequently to say yes to Jesus for the very first time, because that's what he does, and that's the next step. But our vision is to see people take next steps closer to Jesus, whether you've already said yes to him or you have been in the church your whole life. That's why last week we gave you a homework assignment of memorizing a verse and honoring men and honoring women who were godly. And I said, why don't you write a thank you note? And I said, why don't you pray, Holy Spirit, what of these qualities, which of these qualities do I need to work on in my life so that I could be a man or a woman of you, that I could be a man or woman that is worthy of honor. You know, that is why we encourage you, everybody, to get into a small group. Because we know that circles are better than rows and life transformation happens in circles. And so we say, take the next step and plug in to a small group. That is why we're in Next Steps Church. Because the deepest part of any message, the deepest part of any text is the part that changes you. And you are the only one that can respond to that. Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is a wise man. And everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do anything about it, they're foolish. So that's why the last thing that we're going to do here today is not talk about prayer, but we need to pray. That's why the last thing that I want you to do today is on your sheet that you got as you came in this morning, I want you to write out your application. I want you to write out one sentence of what you will be praying about today before you go to bed tonight about what area of your life you need to bear fruit. Is it your marriage? Is it your finances? Is it your health? 
maybe a friendship, maybe your job, maybe education, I don't know. But Jesus tells us to ask. And the Bible says, you have not because you ask not. The book of Matthew chapter 7 verse 24, this is our memory verse this week. So I want to do it together again. Remember, we don't learn a verse by reading it. We learn it by saying it out loud. All right, so here's what we're going to do. When the verse is longer, we break it up into some phrases, okay? So we say the verse reference. The first phrase is going to be everyone who hears these words of mine. The second phrase is, and puts them into practice. And the last phrase is, like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Then we say the reference one more time. So let's do that together. Matthew 7, 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Matthew 7, 24. It's your turn now. Where is it? What does it say? And where do you find that? I want you to work on this this week. I want you to put it into practice. I want you to say yes to Jesus. I want you to approach the word of God and say yes beforehand and say, I'm ready to respond. Because if you were to put the word in your heart, it has the power to transform your life. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truth of what John 15 means here, God, that you are somebody that is accessible to us, that we can remain connected with you. And in spite of the fact that you are not physically manifest here in your skin and your bones and your flesh, Lord, that we know that you are still with us because of the promises that you have made for us. And therefore, our encouragement. We know, Lord, that you have prepared a place for us in heaven. We know, Lord, that you, that we can talk to you anytime. We know that you have sent Holy Spirit to reside within us. And we know that we can have peace that overcomes the world. Jesus, we pray, Lord God, that you would uh, just illuminate in our minds the areas in our life that we need to pray about today. Father, let us not be uh, hearers of the word and so deceive ourselves, but be doers of the word. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Change our lives. May we reflect your son. May we look more like Jesus as we leave this place than when we came in this morning. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.